You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom, I want to invite you to open the Bible with us. And so we will be in Psalm 119. And and you can find a Bible underneath the seat that you're sitting on, or maybe even in the seat in front of you, or you can use any uh, device or smartphone that'll get you there. And uh, we'll be in Psalm 119. The Psalms are in the very middle of the Bible, and and, uh, we'll be in the longest psalm in the Bible, and also the longest chapter in the entirety of the Bible. As we've shared over the last couple of weeks, Psalm 119 is like a hymn, in, in some sense, concerning all that God offers to us in His Word and in Jesus Christ. And so it's the longest, most epic song in the Bible. The Psalms are like the hymn book, the prayer book of the Bible. And in fact, they're the, the most commonly quoted text of the Old Testament that Jesus makes reference to. And so, so this is something that Jesus would have known, and, and the New Testament makes reference to this regularly. And, and in the midst of these hymns, these songs about who God is and what He's created is the, this epic song. That it's an acrostic. It is, that is, the 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet make up the first letter of the 22 stanzas, eight verses apiece, of this epic long psalm about who God is and the fact that he speaks to us. God speaks to us through his law, through his testimony. We'll see these interchangeable words, his word, his precepts, his principles. These are, in this sense, the path that God has laid out for thriving and vitality for his people. And so this entire psalm is a reflection, a meditation. And I shared this with you. It's the, it's the long epic song, right? Like the one that comes on the radio and you know you're going to be listening to it for 10 more minutes. That's Psalm 119. And so we've made it to the halfway point starting today in, in some sense. We're, we're in the latter 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the last half of it. And beginning in verse 89, I'll read the four stanzas from the four next letters of the Hebrew alphabet all the way to verse 120. So as we reflect on who God is and the miracle and the mystery that God would, instead of abandoning us to ourselves, would come across time and space to speak to you and to me, let's begin to listen, beginning in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me for I've sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. 
I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to the mouth, to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe. And have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I pray that these meditations about the goodness and power of God's word would become true for us even as we open this text together. Forever. How do you define it? A better question might be is, when in your conversations do you find yourself using the word forever? You might need some help, some people around you who love you. This is a community of grace. Might need to draw to attention the times when you use the word forever. How do you use the word forever? I love you forever. Forever and always. Maybe that's carved somewhere on a stump or a, or, a, or a tree or, God forbid, spray-painted on a water tower, you and them forever? How do you use that word? How do you conceive of it? Most of us, and maybe even you'll say in the next 45 minutes, this is taking forever. And what we really mean is longer than we anticipated. Longer than we first thought. And the psalmist here invites us to consider these words and think upon the eternality of God. And thus, the eternality 
of his word. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been reflecting on what is meant by these interchangeable terms, testimonies, word, precepts. Did you hear them? And they're meant to be for us as Christians to see and, and understand more deeply how God speaks to us and what it is that God communicates to us. I shared this with you before that the Gospel of John begins telling us the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by telling us that in the beginning was first and foremost the Word. That Word became flesh. And that Word, this, this speaking of God, walking around like a human, is Jesus Christ. And so if you're in this room and, and maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I'm so grateful you're here because I want you to ponder a mystery that Christians hold dear. That God, the creator of the entire universe, has spoken something to us. The God of the universe speaks to us. And the word he speaks to us is an invitation to himself. The word he speaks to us is not a word of condemnation, but a word of rescue from that pending condemnation. And here's the beauty of it. That word was from the beginning. The word that God speaks to you and to me in Christ is not plan B. It's not an accident. God wasn't sitting around shocked by the sinfulness of humanity. Oh no, what do I do? But we find, John tells us, this word was in the beginning. There's nothing that has existed apart from this word. It means that for you and for me, before there was a chasm between us and God, he had already begun to build the bridge back to him. Before the world was even broken and marred by sin, a word of restoration and redemption was already spoken. And that word, verse 89 tells us, is forever. Forever. And it is fixed. Verse 89 tells us that it's firmly fixed in the heavens. Now, as you're walking through the New and Old Testament, you'll hear the word heavens used in different ways. But in the Old Testament specifically, we typically see the word heavens as, as a reference to something, that which is beyond the earth, right? If you think in terms of that which is temporal, that which comes and goes in the earth, that which comes today and changes like a season and is gone tomorrow, that's how we think about this present age. That's how we think about the earth. And that's how, and I'll even share this in a minute here, how we're invited to reflect upon the very nature of our own lives. But that's not the way God works. You and I speak words all the time, words that will be forgotten almost immediately after they're spoken. But I want you to consider here that God and God's word to us is eternal. It's also delightful, we see here in the second stanza. It is illuminating and it is righteous. That is, that is it is perfect. What God speaks to us is fixed firmly. It will not change what God speaks to us and reveals to us is as fixed as his own character. And that for us is actually a cause for delight. It's a cause for a sense of security. Well, at least I know that, fill in the blank. And for, for us, we know that at least I know that God will not change and his word to me to be full of steadfast love and slow to anger towards me grants me delight. But it's also, we see here, maybe a verse you learned or heard at least some point in time. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It illuminates. It actually opens our eyes to the way that things really are. And then lastly, 
maybe more heavily, it is righteous. And that's great and good if you are united to the righteousness of God in Christ, but apart from Christ, that righteousness we saw here, did you catch it? Is a cause for fear and trembling. So, I've each week tried to give you a couple of reasons why I think that this might be one of the most impactful times for you if you will take this to heart. Psalm 119 is what I share with you. It might be the, like, the most boring sermon series I preach, right? If that's the case, then, you know, ministry of rest, peace of Christ upon you, all that. But it might be the most life-changing. Anecdotally speaking, for me, I've been, you know, barring missing or, or you know, skipping or, or circumstances that come, I've been personally reading a stanza of Psalm 119 every single day for the last more than a decade. And I would share with you that this has been one of the most important things in my own life. The psalmist invites us to consider the steadfastness of God and then invite us to to ruminate and meditate upon that steadfastness by being steadfast in his word. I share this with you regularly. We we often think that we're like the sum total of our achievements or failures. And and man, I want to remind you, the, the most true thing about you is the thing that's the most predictable about you every day. The most true thing about you is the thing that you would never skip in the course of a day. And the psalmist invites us to consider what life would be like if the most predictable thing about you and about me was resting in what God says to us. What if the most predictable thing about you and me is that we are walking according to his plan, his words, his statutes, his principles? And so this psalm is an invitation for us. Here's a second reason why I think this can be very helpful for us. I'll say more about this in a couple of weeks to come, but if you'll notice the language, most of the language of this 119th Psalm is first-person singular. Did you catch that? I, me, and my. Now, there is some plurality, right? There's, we saw this, that we're invited into a, a, a companionship of those who fear the Lord, but it's, it's unique in that it has, it being as long as it is, it is filled with first-person singular language. It's about me and my. Did you catch all that? It's all... Speaking to God, about God, but from a very first-person singular perspective. For 22 stanzas. And what are those first-person singular reflections? They're about a person who keeps and reflects upon, meditates upon, and walks according to God's word to us. What he speaks to us in all of creation, what he's revealed to us in scripture, and what he speaks to us in Christ. And so here's what I think that means. This is meant to be a playbook for you and for me in our own first-person singular world and how we relate to God's Word. This is meant to be, it's, it's written, it's, I've, I've shared with you over the last decade, every day I, I read it this way, because this is meant to be, this, this particular passage, it's meant to be a lens through which we understand the whole of the Bible. Namely, did you, it's something we would never do without. We would never think that we could live on our own apart from what God says to us. Our soul longs for this. We delight in this. We love this. It is our meditation we see there in the second stanza we looked at all the day. That's especially important, at least for the last year and a half. And this is why I want to kind of focus our meditation on this today, I hope with, with some very specific aim, uh, a very specific aim. 
I don't know about you, I just share with you kind of a discipline that gives me life, submitting my day to God's word. It's a discipline. It's taken me years to just to where I'm not bad at it, right? I would never say I'm any good at it. I was like, well, I'm, not, I'm less than, I'm not quite terrible anymore. But man, it has been hard over the last year and a half to keep the disciplines of reading and meditating over Scripture in place in my life. And here's what I found out. The more people I talk to, the more people, in many ways, identify exactly with what I'm saying. And this may not be you. Maybe this last year and a half has been like a sweet time of communion with the Lord. Maybe in quarantine you learned a new language and you memorized books of the Bible. Maybe, right? Maybe you put, put, put your quarantine time to good use. But probably not. And in a moment where it should have been a, a sign of God, oh, cool, Oh, great, I get to sit at home all day. I know what I can do. I can read the Bible. I can meditate on God's word. After all, it is my meditation all the day. And what I've found, and maybe you have too, that in the uncertainty or challenge and inconsistency and difficulty of the last year and a half, the thing that's been neglected the most is the thing that the psalmist says that we cannot live without. And so just practically, the way that this series can be the most life-changing is that this might get you through difficult times. This might for you finally become the means by which God grants comfort and guidance through uncertain times. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. It's settled. Your faithfulness, he says in verse 90, endures to all generations. God's power and the power of his word is fixed. It's forever. It's sure. It's faithful. And even we see here creation is a servant to God and his word. It does his bidding. We see beginning in verse 92 that it's the very source of life. That is, apart from reflecting upon and meditating on God's law, that is his guidance for us in the wilderness, we do not have delight and we do not have life. Think of what it might take for you to think of the scripture, right, as delightful. It's delightful. And in the last bit of this stanza, it says that it's limitless. It's beyond perfection. I love it. It's as if he's gone on a tour to see all the perfect things. Right? It's like he went on a world tour to see perfection. He's like, I've seen it. And I've seen its limits. But I have not found the limits of God's commandments. I have not found the limits of God's word to me. God's word is not fickle, it is not uncertain. Instead, it is settled, determined, fixed, sure, and immovable. We see this elsewhere. This isn't just new here. This isn't just something that, that jumps out to us. This is throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you some pictures of that. But, but I at least want to stop for a moment. And, and one of the things that we'll see here in, in the next couple of stanzas even is that as we reflect upon the fixed nature of who God is, how unchangeable God is, and therefore how sure his word to us is, it is a, an immediate invitation to think about all the things that are not. Namely, you and me. We're meant to reflect upon all the things that are transient. We're meant to think about all the things that don't last. Things that for us will end up in a landfill. And we're meant to reflect upon the nature of of God in light of our own mortal nature. To contemplate the eternality of God 
and his word is to simultaneously reflect upon, as Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes tells us, the vanity of life and how much like a vapor we really are. Psalm 62 puts it this way. Those of low estate, speaking of humanity, right, are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. So, so think about it. In, in the grand scheme of eternity, your life and mine is less than a breath. It is less than a breath. You breathe it in, it's gone, it dissipates. The picture is of like on a cold day, breathing, you can see your breath, but immediately it disappears. This is what we are like. And this is what it is like to behold the nature of God, the fixed nature of his word beyond even the heavens. That what God says will endure beyond this world. And what God says speaks into every single thing. Did you hear it there? By your appointment, they, speaking of the generations before, did you catch that? They stand this day, speaking of the earth, he says, all things are your servants. All things. I shared with you last week, I kind of gave what I would call like a crash course on the sovereignty of God over all things. That God's plan for us cannot be stopped. There's nothing that could get in his way. But even the things that seem out of control are not beyond his sovereign hand. All things are your servants. All things simply do what God pleases. All things, every single thing, even to the point where we celebrate the good news that Paul tells the New Testament church in Rome, that all things work together. They work together. For what? For good, for, for those that love God and are called according to what? His purpose, what He plans. Therefore, since God ordains all things, God covers all things, and, and this, is, this is incredible, right? Like This first starts as a mystery, doesn't it? Well, if there is a God, how come there is fill in the blank? And yet, Christians are invited to, to feel comfort in that. That even no, no matter how awful it may seem, no matter how unpredictable it may be, things are not out of control. Revelation 5 says that the end of all things, the end of all history is, was laid out in a scroll and, and, and there was a weeping that goes up in, in heaven around the throne of God. Who could open the throne? Or excuse me, who could open the scroll? Who could do this? And, and the lamb that is conquered is able to open the scroll. And, and I, I'm, I want you to know this, this is a, a conviction of Christianity that, that gives us peace and comfort. Because here's the thing. I know it seems like things have gotten out of hand. But that just depends on whose hand you think things are in. And it may seem like things are out of hand, but friend, they are held by one hand. He's not shrugging. He's not wincing. He holds them all. And even the worst possible memory you have, the worst possible experience that even now scars every bit of your consciousness, will not stop God's plan to demonstrate his love and grace to you forever and ever. Your life, my life, 2020, is not out of hand. 
And that, verse 92 tells us, is the source of our delight. Right? If I just if I just asked you, how much delight do you get for how much control you have over the circumstances of your life? Right? Like, how delightful are all your plans, right? And, and how successful they've been. That would be a cause for despair. He says even here, that would be a cause of death. We would have perished in our affliction. However, our delight is that God speaks an eternal word. And it stands forever. God's words for us are before time. And they will continue even when time comes to an end. They'll be beyond all things. We find in Ephesians the end of this great doxological prayer, this glorifying to God in prayer that to Him will be the glory that is Jesus in the church and in God will get the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout what? All generations, and here's that word again, forever, and, if, and as if you are not convinced by forever, is like, and some ever. Right? Forever, and then more. And then the Hebrew word amen would just simply means true, right? As if God will get the glory forever and then more. True that. That's it. It's done. It's written and it is steadfast. It will not be stopped. Isaiah 40 puts it this way. A voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh. You hear that, that language again of the fixed nature of the heavens and then the 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 futile and vain nature of the earth, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So why am I going on and on and on? And why is the psalmist going on and on about the foreverness of God? Why am I going on and on about how fixed and how firm and how eternal God's word is? Why? Because you are not. You are like grass. Today is a beautiful day. As I'm walking up to the building, today is a beautiful day to ruminate on this. As you leave the building, you will, be, you'll, you will love the beauty of the, the dandelions. Did you see them as you're walking in? Right? A plague on your house. I mean, it depends how you think about dandelions, right? And if you wonder, why are there so many dandelions? It's because, you know, those the little things you pick up, you're not supposed to blow because it makes them worse. I still do that. Like, pfft, yeah. But if for some reason you might like dandelions... Enjoy them. They will be gone. The season of dandelions is short. Why do we reflect upon the fixed nature of God's word? Because, friend, I know you don't want to think about this, but you are here for a moment. You will die. And here's the thing if you're in this room and you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I want to invite you to even, even to reflect upon this. This isn't even a particular, this isn't really a particularly Christian truth. You also will die. In light of that, the psalmist invites us to consider then what really lasts? What really matters? What really endures? So in verse 94, he says, then save me, because I want what you have that's eternal. The wicked are around me to destroy me, but I know your testimonies about me. 
You're like grass. You won't live. You won't last. Contemplate for just a minute right now. How do you think you're going to die? Odds are you are wrong. Odds are it is different than you think, and it is sooner than you think. And I know some of you, I know some of your own stories in this room that you've you've had face-to-face encounters with that. You're a blessing to us. But for just a minute, contemplate the moment of your own death. And contemplate then, practically, how long these words have lasted. Even just practically, how God has chosen to reveal himself in Scripture. These are thousands of years old. I don't know. How many other books do you read from a couple thousand years ago? Is, that, is it possible that's not a coincidence? Like, is it possible there's a timelessness to this? What it might mean for you is that you see God's written word and then even his incarnate word, that is Jesus, as eternal. It's forever. And so the word of God gives us this divine wisdom it guides us towards the character of nature, and character and nature of God is fixed and firm, and it outlasts everything. Let's go to the next stanza, beginning of 97. He says something as an aspirational prayer for all of us. Oh, how I love your law. Right? Isn't that, that's, that's grace operating in a person, right? How many of you love being told what to do? Right? How many love it when people tell me what to do? It's my favorite. And so we have a sour taste in our mouth when we think about being told what to do, like being commanded to something. But that's because we probably have a a real life, like past experience of humans telling us things to do that didn't work out. And yet we find here that, that when we begin to listen to what God has for us, we actually begin to, our affections are stirred for it. We, We love it. I love when God tells me what to do. Now we often think that like, that to listen to God is to like, I, I was going this way and I'm going to do whatever I want and I don't like the Ten Commandments because they tell me stuff that I, I you know, they tell me that it's like, it's like a restriction upon me. And here's what I would say is like, that's not, that's not God's law for us. God's law was a revelation of himself to a people who were lost, homeless, and wandering. And so friend, have you ever wondered what you should do next? Then for the Christian, we know what it is to love and delight that God has not left us in the dark. He's spoken to us, and it's something we get to meditate on all day. What an aspirational prayer, right? Your commandment then, here's what, here's what, what God speaks to us, gives us. It gives us more wisdom than our enemies, more understanding than teachers, and then even more understanding than the aged. So this is a profound, I'll just make a quick reflection on this. It gives us a picture that because of God's word to us, what he grants to us, we have wisdom, guidance, and joy. And they're all found in this stanza. I love the, the picture of that joy in verse tw- is 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. They're sweeter than honey. So look what happens when we reflect upon God's word. It gives us wisdom beyond that of our enemies. Right? So whatever plot the enemy has against us, God has spoken to us in Christ and revealed to us in Scripture like the, the cheat sheet. We can get past it. We can sidestep the plot of the enemy. We won't be destroyed because, uh, because God words, uh, God's word allows us to see those plots and avoid them. And they are ever with us. It gives us greater understanding than even teachers. 
the idea here he's communicating is that like, is it like a student who is sitting under a wise and an insightful teacher, and yet the best that that insightful teacher can give you on their own two feet and by their own strength is really often just like, I don't know, the result of their own experience, isn't it? Whereas godly wisdom is supernatural, it's from beyond the earth, it's fixed in the heavens such that it makes us even wiser than the wisest teacher. After all, isn't that what most of teaching is? It's good teaching is just kind of helping you learn from everyone else's mistakes. Right? Most, most wisdom in an earthly sense just comes from experience, and most experience comes from bad judgment. And so many of you have that kind of wisdom. Thank God you survived it, but you have a long list of things you shouldn't do, right? You're like, well, don't do that. Let me tell you about that, right? But think about it. That's an earthly wisdom that, frankly, was born out of your foolishness. And, and we find here that this kind of wisdom that comes from God is born out of what? God's omniscience. He knows all things, and so when we hear him, we begin to know even what the wisest people in the world might not be able to reach unless they heard it from God as well. Here's the fun one for Connection Church. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I've shared this verse with so many uh, gospel community leaders in our church, and, and many of you might have heard me kind of encourage you along this way. Listen, one of the things that, if I can help you just address the elephant in the room and help you understand it, one of the first things you might understand, like, if you have any background in church, one of the first things that people typically say when they meet people in our church is they get the feeling that, uh, like Connection Church, the median age is very low, and our church is very young. You might have felt that. A um, couple things. One, that's actually a reflection of how high and unhealthily high the median age is for the declining church in America. So most of you, your experience of the church is that it's aging and declining, and so you're like, this is young. And so you're like, you think that's weird, but it's actually like, well, in the, in the grand scheme of Christianity, a declining, a declining and aging church is weirder. But we're accustomed to it, so this seems strange, right? So here's the second thing. We praise God for this. Statistically speaking, the, the younger you are in this room, the less likely you are to even be in this room. Statistically, and you know this, many of you, like if you're millennial or Gen Z, or most of the people you know are not Christians, are not a part of a local church. The fact that you're here is a miracle. We're excited about it. We're not ashamed of it. It's pretty fantastic. Third thing. It means that if we take verse 100 seriously, then we begin to reflect upon even Paul's wisdom to Timothy. Let no one despise you because of your age. Don't you dare let anyone look down on you because of that. So let me speak to the young people in the room. You may not be wiser inherently than any of the people older than you, but when you walk according to God's word, you have more understanding than people much older than you. Old people in the room, you know who you are. I'm there, right? My wife and I were like, we want to grow old together. And then we're like, check, did it. Did that one. Ugh. Like, old people, listen to me. That means we have to come at this with a spirit of humility, don't we? 
the possibility that those much younger than us might actually be the source of deeper understanding than we think we have. And for you and me, that, that might just mean that we get used to being discipled in many ways by people much younger than us. And I know it will feel weird because you've been conditioned, you've been conditioned, right, by the culture to think that's not possible. But listen to what the psalmist tells us. That's exactly what happens when people begin to walk according to God's word. If you don't believe me, just follow me around my house, right? And some of the wisest, you know, best guidance I hear is from my two daughters who are like, and mostly it's like, Daddy, that's not nice. You shouldn't do that, right? What am I going to say? You don't know anything. You're, you're too young, right? Like, what do you know about that? Or am I going to trust that there's a wisdom, a timeless wisdom, that supersedes what we typically understand about what a person, what makes a person wise? I don't turn aside from these things. And these things in verse 103 are sweet. They teach us. They, God, God is the ultimate teacher. We, we want to learn what he has to teach us. We want to know not just about the wisdom of this earth, but we want to know about the kind of wisdom that's firmly fixed in the heavens, the kind of thing that will last forever. Maybe if you think about it this way, that we understand what God has granted to us, and then we respond to it. God speaks to us, and God reveals himself to us, and then we respond to it. That, that may not seem like a big deal, but friend, I want, I want to encourage you. As you take a survey of world religions, religion across the world, even a, a form of religiosity that might call itself Christian in some parts of the world, ultimately is about what you do to get to God. It is about what you need to accomplish right? Five pillars you need to adhere to, right? Pilgrimage or meditation or reflection or some enlightenment that you need to achieve to get closer to God. It's what you do. You, you achieve, you accomplish, you obey, you do these things. And, and religion then is our way to get to God. And Psalm 119 shows us that we don't get to God. We just respond to the fact that God has gotten to us. God has crossed time and eternity and come to be like us so that we'll never be like, well, I've never known God. You remember there was a man named Jesus? And so for us, we simply just respond. All we're doing is respond. We're just responding to God coming to us. And so friend, if this is for you, then just hear the meditation of the psalmist here. Stop trying to impress God. And then stop trying to impress the people around you. It's a sure way to stay in prison till you die. Hear the good news. The most impressive, beautiful, and delightful being in the universe has come to you. Jesus has come in the form of a human to be all that you and I wish we could be. Now, Verse 103 says, when we think about that, isn't that sweet? If I told you today, you don't have to impress anyone, you don't have to live up to anyone's standards, you don't have to, like, you no longer have to see yourself through the eyes of everyone else around you, is it possible you might also reflect and go, man, that's sweet. I want some more of that. Next stanza begins in verse 105. Common verse, you've heard it 
a ton, I'm sure. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. See, I still remember the King James. I'm trying not to. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is that what God says to us grants us enlightenment. It's our source of wisdom, it's our source of guidance, and it's our source of joy. We can trust it. It illuminates things. It allows us to see the true nature of things. And even, according to verse 106, it's something you can swear on. But in verse 107, we find kind of a picture of the context of this verse. The context of this verse, notice, like we saw last week, is what? Verse 107. Severe affliction. Give me life, O Lord, according to, there's that phrase again, your word. So just quickly, maybe if you've already heard this verse and memorized it, my my hope would be that you begin to memorize the context. The only way that God's word being a light to our path is good or important is if you are in an incredibly dark place. And the context of this verse is affliction, severe affliction. The wicked, in verse 10, are trying to lay a snare, trying to catch him. And yet he can say, but I can see it, and I can see clearly. God's word to me is clear. We can trust it. We can trust that the illuminating nature of Scripture and the illuminating nature of what Christ has done for us is a guide, even in the midst of danger, to the point where it can be our joy, as you see in verse 111 and 112, and a reward. Just practically speaking, one of the greatest benefits of the Scripture is the guidance that it gives in our daily actions. God, God didn't send, us to, send it to us to blind us with its brilliant light, but to guide us through darkness. I heard one quote this way, that to use God's word faithfully is to learn where to put your foot as you walk along the slippery paths of life. And there's no need to stumble or fall. Now, this is incredibly important. I'll just draw brief attention to it because most of you have been steeped in a tradition somewhere or another that kind of goes like this. What you really need to do is follow your heart. That's what you really need to do. That's where all the good is. Right down to your heart. Never mind that the Scripture says that the heart is actually wicked and sick above all things. So verse 105 is incredibly... Notice what a, what a countercultural statement it is. It says, that, no, you don't need to follow your heart. You need to follow and sense the heart of God. Respond to the path he has laid out. So just stop for a minute and think about what you would do if you could follow your heart right now. And then just consider for a moment that that's the worst possible idea you've had all day. It's possible. Proverbs 14, 12 is true when it says this. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. What if your best ideas are actually the most destructive things? Then verse 105 tells us, thank God that he's not left us in that. Thank God that he won't leave us and and leave us to our destruction. Instead, he will, in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lead us through and lead us away. He will lead us out of it. 
We can trust then in God's word as our ultimate guide because we have sustenance in it. It keeps us alive. Did you catch that? Protected. But it also gives us delight. They are in verse 111. Did you catch that? The joy of my heart. Before we move on from this stanza to the last one, notice one other thing that it says. Very little of Psalm 119 speaks of what we would have in the Old Testament as the sacrificial system. That is the offering of sacrifice to experience atonement and forgiveness before God. But we get a little bit of a hint, maybe not to the structure and form of the sacrificial system, which is certainly in the background here, but we get a picture of its heart. Did you, did you catch it here? Verse 108. Now, accept my free will offering of praise, O Lord. Literally, my free will offering of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Now, I encourage you to, to dive deeply into this. What you'll find is you, as you get to, to know more and more about the Old Testament and the, the story of God's redeeming work and God's people throughout the Old Testament, there's some important events. And at a certain juncture, people have these, kind of like they, they kind of are set free from bondage, but then they build their own temple. They rebuild a second temple and they build a tabernacle. And you'll see this in the book of Exodus and Chronicles and even through the prophetic literature of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you'll see in each of those accounts a mention of this free will offering. That is that it was right and appropriate as they were right, because they were, they, were, they were tithing to, to support the, the work of the poor. They were giving an additional tithe to, to support the work of the priests, an additional tithe for, uh, for the, the ministry of, of sacrifice. But then he says, above that, we give a free will offering. A free will, the overflow, if you will. Not compelled, no structures making us do it. But it overflows to do what in each of those cases? To build up the structure. To build up, in this case, the temple and the tabernacle. Well, that's enlightening for us, isn't it? Because we know that in Christ now, we are the temple of God. We, the family of God, are the dwelling place of God. And how does it say that we build up with this free will offering? Did you hear it? with our words. Two things. Never underestimate. God help me on this one. Never underestimate the damage that you can do with your words. Why? Because as we see here, secondly, you ought to never underestimate the power to build up. After all, we're just reflecting the heart of our Father, right? So, side note here. I get to, get to kind of brag on you. Um, we've been, we're still in the process of kind of making this space great for us to use, we're taking the baton of ministry in this building. And, uh, and so my goal is that we as a church would raise about $100,000 inside. Right now we've raised over $87,000 people in this room given to this project. And I want, that's a free will offering, isn't it? The goal is that it's above and beyond what you give regularly to the ministry and mission and vision of this church. And I love it, right? There's, I'm standing on a stage built by that. You're listening to a sound system, right? These are all things, like these are all covered in that, right? We invested in that. We built up this structure out of the overflow of your heart. It's beautiful. And none of those things will be able to do what your words of praise, the psalmist says, will be able to do. We are truly and eternally built up by the words that we share with one another. Words of good news. 
words of praise to God for his redeeming work. Never lose sight of that. The last stanza, it's dark, isn't it? The word hate is only in the, in the Bible around 150 times. It makes us feel quite uncomfortable. After all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you don't hate your enemies, but you love them and persecute. You, you, you persecute. Don't. That, that's <laughs> Freudian slip. That was me talking. That's not the Holy Spirit. I want to persecute my enemies. That's not. You bless those who persecute. You pray for your enemies. You love them. And so when he says, I love the double-minded, he's, he's talking about the duplicity we saw in the book of James, right? Like, I hate this. But that's because I know how much I love how straight and narrow your law is. You then are my hiding place. You're the refuge for me. I, I'm safe there. So much that he says, depart from me. Anything that's double-minded, get away. Because this is the, a reflection of, not only on the sweetness of God's word as we saw there, but also the severity of God's word. Protect me. Hold me up that I might be safe. And then why? Because in verse 118, you spurn all of those who go away. The wicked of the earth discard, are discarded like dross. Therefore, that's why I will cling to your testimonies. Think of it this way. We, we reject the ways of double-mindedness. We avoid their paths, and we revere the righteousness of God. Do you love God's plan for your life such that you hate everything that's outside of it? Do you detest the double-mindedness that makes you confess faith to God with your mouth, but deny Him in the way that you act? Because that is a true and right encounter. Affliction is a fact of life. Living in a difficult place where the enemy has hidden snares, where evildoers are surrounded, or we're surrounded by evil, and we're even more than that, utterly immersed in the evil of our own hearts. Affliction is a fact of life. And so how do we react? Do we fight? Do we call to arms? Apparently, what we do is we call out to God and entrust ourselves to Him. First Peter says it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised. That's for me specifically. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And so, we're not surprised by affliction. Instead, we entrust ourselves to the righteous God in the midst of it. How long is forever? Look to God for the answer. His word will never end. And what is his word to us in the midst of... Did you, I mean, that's, that's wild, isn't it? The last verse, I'd I, I love to end on a happy note there, but it just says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I'm afraid. It closes very darkly, doesn't it? And yet, here's the thing, in Christ, it does not scare us. We tremble at being rightly guilty before God. Because here's the, here's, here's the power of this. This is for all of us. We are all rightly under God's just judgment. That thing that you've done that you don't want anyone to find out about, God knows about it, and you deserve judgment for it. And so do I. It would be amazing 
if Jesus would just love and save the falsely accused, but he doesn't. He loves and saves the justly accused, those that ought to tremble for fear of God's judgment. But what's so confounding is that Jesus loves those who are rightly guilty. The scandal, the offense of the gospel is not necessarily who deserves judgment, but it's better to think about the scandal of the gospel is who deserves mercy and grace. If you want to find people who deserve judgment, you just have to walk around the world. But if you, do want, if you want to find someone who deserves God's mercy and love and grace, you won't be able to. And yet week in and week out, we get together and declare the scandal. Not that we're not justly accused. We certainly are. Not that we don't come in here with guilt and burden. We certainly do. But that in spite of that, we have received the grace of God in Christ. Such that the lamp into our feet, the light into our path, in that darkness is Jesus. For the justly accused, for those who have lost their way, for those who have believed the lie, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For those even who are dead in their own judgment and sin. Friend, would you consider the scandal and absurdity of the gospel? That even though we should live and tremble for fear of God's just judgment, just judgment, what do we do? We instead build one another as a free will offering, praise to him that he has chosen to demonstrate his mercy to us by saving sinners. Don't be shocked that you're a sinner that ought to tremble. Be shocked that you might be saved by God and rejoice. Don't be caught off guard that we should live in fear in light of our own disobedience. Be blown away that we are able to celebrate the grace of God in the midst of it. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of God. I love that. I get the impression if I were standing there and the psalmist said that, he'd be talking about me. Right? Depart from me, you evildoers. You know who you are. I'd be like, well, okay. That was nice. I made a good run. We were good friends while it lasted. Isn't that a powerful contrast? Depart from me, you evildoers. And the, perf- the perfect example of the obedient Son of God comes along, and instead of saying, depart from me, he says what? Come to me. All you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let's thank God for that in Christ together. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that it is steadfast, it is pure, it is holy, it is eternal. But I ask that even today it would become what the psalmist promises for us, that it would be a source of delight. Might today those in this room, even for the first time, begin to hear that word and hear the scandal of the cross, that the word that God has spoken to us that is eternal and will not be retracted is a word of restoration and reconciliation in Christ. I I pray that those in this room would hear that word loud and clear. I pray that we would hear the words of approval, the words of acceptance, the words of love, the words of forgiveness, the words of redemption that you speak to us in Christ. 
May the cross and the empty tomb be the loudest bullhorn for those words to us. May they be the exclamation mark on those words, that they are true and good. We confess that we trust in lesser words. We long for lesser things. I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds, even as we hear the psalmist say, our delights, our our loves, would you fill them with your words of redemption, fill them with words of grace. Might today be the day that the sinner confesses and is experiences deep forgiveness and restoration, even if it's for the millionth time. Might for those of us who are weary and discouraged, we hear the words of rest, that you are our refuge, that you are a safe place for us. Might we hear that and receive it today. Might those of us who feel like we're wandering begin to experience an illumination that your light is a path for us. You won't leave us. You won't let us go astray. You'll draw us to yourself. Whatever words we need to hear this morning, Lord, would you, by the Holy Spirit, apply them deeply to our hearts so that we respond in an overwhelming free will offering of praise in Jesus' name. Amen.